0: And welcome to Musings on History. Episode 5.4, History of Christianity, the rise of Islam and the Christianization of all Europe. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana, and this episode is about the spread of Islam and the Islamic conquest of the 7th and 8th centuries and how Christendom, that is, the Christian polities of the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Oriental Orthodox persuasions reacted to this new global religion and the geopolitical polities that came from it. This episode is one that I was most excited and nervous to research and write Growing up as a Black Catholic in the West, Islamic history is not one that I have any personal connection to. And in my institutional schooling, Islamic history was usually either otherized and summarized pretty quickly or intentionally ignored in favor of a more Eurocentric curriculum that charted human civilization development through the progression of European countries and their satellites namely the U.S., Canada, and like Australia and New Zealand. What happens when history is taught this way is that the history of non-Europeans, a.k.a. white people, begins with their first contact with Europeans and is cataloged according to how those interactions take place. This makes it very difficult for a Black person in the Western world, such as myself, to conceive of themselves as anything more than a juxtaposition to whiteness, and in most cases as a lesser juxtaposition. So if you're not mindful of how this framing of history can affect you psychologically, you could begin to think of your non-white history, which is essentially your conception of self, as a story of non-white people's historic struggle to rise to the civilizational benchmarks of Europe. This is why when you see illustrations of European settlers and indigenous Americans making contact for the first time, The illustrations usually show virgin forests and unused, unexploited natural resources that the indigenous people were too naive to exploit for technological, social, and economic advancement. In reality, the Europe of the 16th century was no more technologically advanced than the Americas. And in some cases, the Americas were far more advanced, such as in the case of the Incan and Aztec empires. I feel like a better way to study and teach history would be in a more concurrent fashion where you study the civilizational ages like the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the Medieval Age, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh you study them in ages and then you talk about what different groups of people in different parts of the world were doing at those times. For instance, Prior to what is commonly referred to as the age of exploration in European history, most of Europe was engaged at some point or another in wars of religion, not with people of other faiths, but with each other, over doctrinal and liturgical differences in their shared Christian religion. Because so much time was spent fighting one another, the Europeans of this era devoted most of their technological research to inventing better weapons of war. The great thinkers of Europe were primarily concerned with defending their theological positions over, say, advancing new philosophies. And the art of this time period was mostly religious and chiefly concerned with war and also with defending theological positions. In contrast, the Incan Empire of the 16th and 17th centuries had largely achieved a level of social cohesion and stability That was lacking in Europe at the same time. And thus, uh, the technological research of the Incan Empire was mainly focused on infrastructure and increasing the amount of trade that they could do with their neighbors. Their art and their philosophers were also primarily concerned with extolling the virtues of Incan society and exporting this narrative to neighboring tribes in the hopes that these tribes would want to become part of the Incan Empire. Much of this art and writing and architecture was destroyed by the Spanish when they colonized South America. But what has remained does show us that the Incan Empire was more of a peer to the Spanish crown than a lesser entity in need of Spanish guidance to attain civilization. So this is why I do this podcast, so that I can present a more inclusive perspective on various historical subjects, so that anyone who listens can expand upon their conception of self and of others and see the world in a more cohesive fashion. Chapter 1, Out of Arabia, a Prophet Emerges the religion of Islam is the youngest of the three Abrahamic faiths and is founded on the belief that Allah, which means God in Arabic, ordained a man named Muhammad from Mecca to be the final prophet in a long line of prophets, starting with the Semitic patriarch Abraham. According to all of the Abramaic faiths, Abraham's wife, Sarah, presented her Egyptian maid, Hagar, to Abraham so that he could have sex with her, impregnate her, and the resulting child would be raised by Sarah and Abraham as their own son, since Sarah had not been able to bear Abraham a child by that point. And Yahweh had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. So like I said in the first episode, as a demonstration of the Mesopotamian god, El's Over the other gods in the pantheon, namely the goddess Inanna, Yahweh caused Sarah to get pregnant and deliver a healthy baby boy named Isaac when she was like in her 80s. By the time Isaac was born, though, Sarah's maid Hagar had already delivered her own healthy baby boy named Ishmael. The name Ishmael is an arabicized version of of the name Yishmael, which is a Semitic name with roots in Akkadian, Babylonian, and early Aramaic. And it means El has hearkened. Well, as you might expect, once both Hagar and Sarah had sons by Abraham, things started getting a little tense in the caravan. And according to the Christian Bible, Hagar became contemptuous of Sarah. So Sarah dismissed her into the desert with little Ishmael. The Jewish Midrash portrays the dust up a little bit differently, also stating that Hagar started to look down on Sarah. But instead of Sarah dismissing the pregnant Hagar into the desert, Hagar runs away from Sarah and the angel Gabriel comes to her and tells her that she would merit giving birth to a son whose voice God would hear, Yishmael, who would be strong and fierce, a man of the wild and respected among her people. Then, according to the Midrash, Hagar returned to Sarah, but as Ishmael got older, he mocked and bullied uh, Isaac. And so Ishmael and his mother were exiled to the wilderness, but the Midrash doesn't specify where this wilderness was. In the Jewish tradition, Hagar and Ishmael got lost near Beersheba, And Ishmael was about to die of thirst. And then God showed up at the last minute to tell Hagar that he was just kidding. There was a well full of water right over there. And that Ishmael would have lots of descendants because he was a son of Abraham. But that his descendants wouldn't get along with Isaac's descendants because even Yahweh thinks the two-state solution is bullshit, apparently. The Christian Bible and the Muslim Quran say the same thing with some minor variations as to what sort of man Ishmael became after that experience at the well. All three faiths are generally in agreement that Ishmael became the father of the Arabs. And from this Abrahamic bloodline, eventually the prophet Muhammad is born. There is some pre-Islamic poetry that mentions Ishmael and Abraham, as well as the pre-Islamic monotheists like Zaidi ibn Amir, who preached that the monotheistic worship of El, who he would have called Allah, was the original faith of the Arabs, being that they were descended from Abraham. So I kind of want to make a Jesus, John the Baptist, Muhammad, Zayd ibn Amir comparison since Jesus acknowledged that everything he was, John could have been. And Zayd ibn Amir was a contemporary of Muhammad and preached roughly the same message, albeit without the final prophet part, which is why he's not considered a Muslim preacher, just a pre-Islamic Arab monotheist. And it also just occurred to me that J.K. Rowling ripped off that concept in Harry Potter with Harry and Neville Longbottom being the John the Baptist Zadie, uh, with Neville being like the John the Baptist Zadie Ibn Amir archetype, meeting all of the requirements to be the chosen one, but for some reason not being chosen. Also, um, Abraham and Ishmael were the ones who like built the Kaaba, I think. Yeah, that was them. So lineage is super important in the Abrahamic faiths, as you can see for Jews. Lineage is literal proof that God's covenant is still in force. Even after repeated attempts by various groups to wipe out the Jewish people for Christians, the divinity of Jesus is directly tied to his descent from the line of King David, which is how he becomes the Messiah and King David is from Abraham somehow. Uh, For Muslims, Muhammad's descent from Ishmael is proof that, one, Allah kept his promise to Hagar. Two, Muhammad is the final prophet from a long line of prophets, which made me realize that, like, both of them being descended from Abraham... Jesus through David and Muhammad through Ishmael, or rather Jesus through Isaac and Muhammad through Ishmael, that kind of means that Jesus and Muhammad are cousins. But three, that the monotheistic faith that Muhammad preached was the true and original faith of the Arabs. So basically they blamed paganism and pre-Islamic Arabia on um, like, the Persians and the Romans and just, you know, I don't know, whoever else they had been introduced to. Now, where the three faiths break is essentially a matter of if there is a lieutenant of God or not, and if so, who's the guy? As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Jews maintain that the Old Testament was not referring to a spiritual Messiah, but a political one. The Christians over time came to disagree with that assertion, and they now claim that the Old Testament does, in fact, foreshadow a divine Jesus Christ spiritual Messiah. The Muslims take the middle ground in the Jesus debate, acknowledging that he was a prophet and a Messiah, and everything that he purportedly did and said in his 33 years of life, including the miracles, the parables, the disciples, and going to heaven, all that's accurate. They do not, however, believe that Jesus died on the cross, which is really odd and kind of like, what? Wh- why wouldn't Jesus have died on the cross? That was a really typical way to die in Roman Judea, all over the Roman Empire around that time, and Jesus did live around the time of the first Jewish revolt, and they did did crucify a lot of the participants in that revolt. So there's really no reason to think that he didn't like at least die on the cross. A lot of people did. But they also don't believe that he was resurrected and they don't buy that son of God stuff either. Which when you really think about that's pretty much Nestorian Christianity. And seeing as how the Nestorians had to take refuge in Sassanid Persia and Roman-controlled northern Arabia after the Council of Constantinople, it's not that far-fetched to surmise that Nestorianism had a lot of influence on what eventually becomes Islam. Jesus must have been a really charismatic guy for everybody to have an origin story about him. I'm more of a John the Baptist kind of girl myself, but if y'all like it, I love it. So Muhammad liked to meditate in this cave called Hira, which is located on the Jabba al-Nur mountain outside of Mecca. And it was here that he began to receive the Quran verse by verse from the angel Gabriel or Jibrael in Arabic. According to Islamic belief, Gabriel informed Muhammad that he was the final prophet, and his mission, should he choose to accept it, was to first return the children of Israel to the monotheistic faith of their forefathers, and then to spread the word of Islam to the rest of the world. Islam means submission to God, and Muslims believe that Islam is the complete version of what they call fitra, which is a state of purity and innocence that all humans are born with before being corrupted by the material world. Only through Islam can a person return to that state. Islam is then a continuation of the ancient monotheistic covenant with the believers of El and Muhammad is the final prophet in a list of prophets beginning with Adam and going on down the line to include David and Daniel and Jesus and all those other guys you learned about in Sunday school or madrasha or yeshiva. So then Muhammad takes the Quran and starts preaching in his hometown of Mecca, but much like Jesus with the Jews of Jerusalem, they weren't really feeling it aside from a select few. What was crazy about it was the people that were on Muhammad's head the most were his own kin, the Quraysh tribe. Things got so bad that in 613, Muhammad, 613 AD by the way, Muhammad sent some of his followers to the Christian kingdom of Aksum in present day Ethiopia. Muhammad and the rest of his followers then left Mecca for the city of Medina in what is now called the Hegir- Hegira, Hegira, I'm not sure. While in Medina, Muhammad drafted the constitution of Medina, which created the Ummah or community of Quraysh converts and converts from other tribes. The Constitution of Medina also recognized eight Jewish tribes as part of the community of Medina, but not part of the Ummah, and gave Muhammad special mediating rights amongst the tribes, forbidding them to wage war on one another without his permission. The Constitution of Medina also ensured religious freedom for all Medinans who were monotheist because Muhammad did not endorse religious toleration for the remaining pagans in Medina. As a matter of fact, they kicked them out. The constitution of Medina essentially made Medina a multi-religious Islamic state with religious protections for Christians and Jews who Muhammad referred to as the people of the book. Muhammad and his successor's special consideration for the people of the book would become a key factor in the Islamic conquest that followed the unification of the Arabian tribes under Islam. After converting and organizing the Medinan tribes, Muhammad and his followers converted Arabs all over the peninsula, fighting the Quraysh every step of the way. After eight years of intermittent fighting, Muhammad decided to just take 10,000 of his followers and march on Mecca. So apparently the Quraysh were not ready for an all-out battle, and Muhammad ended up taking Mecca with very little bloodshed. In 632, Muhammad fell ill and died, and by the time of his death, almost the entire Arabian peninsula had converted to Islam. There were some small pockets of Eastern Arabia who unconverted immediately after Muhammad's death, resulting in a civil war called, known as the Riddle Wars or the Wars of Apostasy. And there were some Yemenite Jews living in Sana'a and the island of Socotra. But a lot of those Yemenite Jews left Arabia by the end of the 8th century, either for Persia or into the Ethiopian highlands where they were absorbed into the Beta Israel. By the 1950s, the majority of the remaining Yemenite Jews had left Arabia for Israel. After Muhammad's death, there was an intense debate about who he had deemed as his successor. The majority of Muslims believe that Abu Bakr, a companion of Muhammad and the father of his third wife, Aisha, was called to be the prophet's successor. And today he's regarded as the first caliph of Sunni Islam, which is the larger sect. The Shiites were those who felt that Muhammad had chosen his cousin and son-in-law Ali ibn Abi Talib as his successor at Ghadir Qum, which is a pond where Shia Muslims believe Muhammad revealed the final verse of the Quran and proclaimed the perfection of Islam. There were 3 leaders who claimed to be prophets, Tulayya Musalima, and Saja, and their claim was that they had signed up to follow Muhammad as the prophet of Allah, but owed nothing to Abu Bakr. So as the saying goes, who don't hear must feel, and Abu Bakr and the tribes who had remained loyal crushed the rebellion between 632 and 633. After reuniting the Muslims of the Arabian Peninsula, Abu Bakr sought to complete Muhammad's planned retribution against the Ghassanids, who were Arab Christian Fodorati who fought for the Byzantine Empire. A chief had killed a Muslim emissary from Medina, and the Muslims exam- planned to exact a penalty, which was the tribal custom of the day. Unfortunately, the Muslims were routed in the Battle of Mu'tah, and Abu Bakr wanted to settle the score, which he did by sending small raiding parties into Byzantine Palestine and Sasanian Iraq. Abu Bakr knew that the new Arabian Muslim state would be seen as a threat to both the Sasanians in Persia and the Byzantines, but the two countries had worn themselves out over the centuries fighting with each other, and the Arabian Muslims could exploit this weakness to conquer both empires. Chapter 2 The Muslim Conquest, Establishment of the Caliphates, and the People of the Book. Abu Bakr reigned as Caliph for only a little over two years before dying of illness, he's known as the first of the Rashidun, the four rightly guided caliphs. His successor was Omar one who took up Abu Bakr's incursions into Byzantine-controlled Syria, and the Muslims conquered that area by 641. They moved really fast. Losing the cities of Jerusalem, Damascus, and Caesarea were a big hit to the Christians of all sects, but... Caliph Omar promised the Christians of the Levant that he would not order any churches to be turned into mosques and extended the protections of the constitution of Medina to the conquered peoples of the Levant. The church of the Holy Sepulchre still stands in Jerusalem today and Caliph Omar famously prayed on a rug outside of the church. North of Syria, the Muslims faced Less success in conquering Anatolia in their effort to take Constantinople, so they focused their efforts efforts southward into Byzantine Egypt. Egypt and the rest of North Africa had only recently been retaken by the Byzantines after the Ostrogoths and Vandals had swept out the Western Roman Empire. The Nicene Byzantine Christians hadn't really treated the Chalcedonian Coptic Christians of Alexandria and Cairo any better than the vandals and Ostrogoths had due to the lingering issue of Dio versus myaphytism, And so the cops were in no rush to take sides when the Muslims took the cities of Cairo and Alexandria in 639 and 641, respectively. In every area that they acquired, the Muslims offered the same deal. Live as people of the book, which afforded religious toleration for Jews and Christians, but also required them to... Uh, well, required non-Muslim males living in Muslim-controlled areas to pay a tax called the jizya. Some recall the jizya as a humiliating penalty, but the exemption of churches and clergy from the jizya counters that argument. As the caliphates grew and encompassed more non-Muslim peoples, the jizya expanded to include Zoroastrians, Hindus, and Buddhists as well. Now, after some naval losses and victories in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Muslims then took the island of Cyprus and built their fleets in Alexandria, Tyre, Cyprus, Beirut, and Acre. And away, and from the eighth century onward, they used these forward bases to launch raids on Byzantine cities in Greece, southern Italy, and Anatolia. Next, the Muslims conquered Mesopotamia and Persia, delivering a crushing, crushing feat, defeat to the forces of Sassanid Emperor Yazgird III at the Battle of al qadisiyah in 636. A large component of this defeat was the refusal of the Mars Bands to come to Yazgird's aid. The Mars Bands were a class of Margraves and military commanders who administered the border provinces of the Sasanian Empire. In the Sasanian caste system, Mars bands were primarily from the Zoroastrian class, but many of their troops were a mix of Aryan, Nestorian, and Nicene Christians, as well as Jews and some pagans from the Turco-Persian tribes of the Khorasan. None of these groups had much reason to love the Zoroastrian elites or the emperor, and the fate of the Sasanian Empire was sealed after the Battle of Nahavand in 642, where the Arab Muslims chased the depleted Persian military across the Zagros Mountains into the plains. In Muslim history, this battle is known as the Victory of Victories, and it is seen as a divine mandate from Allah to convert the Persian people to Islam. For Persians, the defeat still stings. Although they are very proud and devout, mostly Shiite Muslims now, many Persians, for centuries felt that the defeat led to the Arab- Arab- Arabization of Persia and a decline of Persian culture that was not rectified until the Abbasids came to power hundreds of years later. The po- the, the Persian poet Ferdowsi wrote this in his epic poem, Shanameh, 400 years after the ba- Battle of Nahavant. Damn this world, damn this time, damn this fate that uncivilized Arabs have come to make me a Muslim. Where are your valiant warriors and priests? Where are your hunting parties and your feats? Where is that warlike mean and where are those great armies that destroyed our country's foes? Count Iran as a ruin, as the lair of lions and leopards. Look now in despair. That is dramatic. Okay. Okay. The Rashidun Caliphate by 640 AD encompassed the Levant, which is present-day Syria, Jordan, and Palestine, the whole Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, Cyprus, and most of the former Sasanian Empire, including present-day Iraq, Iran, and Pakistan. Caliph Osman, the third of the four Rashidun Caliphs, oversaw the conquests of Afghanistan and Armenia, both of which proved fairly difficult because of the terrain and the tenacity of the Armenian Christians and the Afghan Buddhists. In five years, the Rashidun had toppled the Sasanian Empire and were now posing a serious threat to the Byzantine Empire, who they had taken Egypt and the Levant from. The conquests were interrupted by a civil war in Arabia known as the First Fitna. In the assassination of Osman, then led to the Islamic schism and the elevation of Ali ibn Abi Talib as the fourth caliph, according to the Sunnis, and as the first caliph, according to the Shia. Ali was also assassinated in 661, and the fifth caliph was his son, Hassan ibn Ali, who abdicated after about six months to let Muawiyah, the first the Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin become the sixth caliph and the first from the sixth caliph? Oh, did I miss a number? No. Okay. Sixth caliph and the first from the Umayyad caliphate. Hassan did this to end the first fitna and in Shia Islam, he is regarded as the second of the 12 imams. Muayyad moved the capital from Medina to Damascus and relied on the still heavily Christian Syrian bureaucracy to manage the caliphate's affairs. He was tolerant of the Syrian Christians, giving them money to restore the main church in Edessa that had been destroyed in an earthquake. And the Syrian Christians wrote an epigraph for him in 663 that called him Abd al-Muawiyah Amir al-Muawiyah. Meaning, God's servant Moya, Commander of the Faithful, with the Caliph's name preceded by a cross. Moya was more aggressive than his predecessors in pursuing war with the Byzantines, and for about thirty years, Moya advanced campaigns against the Byzantines by both land and sea. Although he was not successful in conquering Anatolia, Moya's constant battering of the Byzantines ensured that they were never able to recapture the Levant or Egypt from the Muslims. In addition to weakening the Byzantine position, Muayya extended the caliphate's influence in North Africa into the Maghreb. The Byzantines were distracted by succession issues and the Muslims were able to add the province of Ifriqiya into the caliphate's domains by 673. Here for the first time, the Muslims are on the radar of the Latin Christians who called them Saracens. And Roman Catholic bishops worried that the Muslims would conquer Italy and allow Aryans to once again practice freely. So they really weren't worried that like, oh no, the Muslims are going to launch from North Africa and convert us all. They were more concerned that if it wasn't the Byzantine Christians or them, then everybody else was just going to let the Aryans and Nestorians run amok. That was like their main concern. In the 5th century AD. In Iberia, the Muslim Berbers took advantage of a succession crisis in the Visigothic kingdom and launched an invasion of Iberia in 711 from Tangier. The Berber Muslims took the cities of the Gothic kingdoms pretty easily as most surrendered without a fight. The Sephardic Jews of Iberia welcomed the Muslims as liberators, preferring to pay the jizya and be left to their affairs in peace, rather than be marginalized and persecuted by the Catholics. By 713, the entire Iberian Peninsula was under Muslim control, save a little strip of land in the North Coast, now known as Basque Country. The Basques were descended from indigenous tribes that had never become Romanized, as far back as Caesar's conquest and the Punic Wars before that. The Basque language is considered the only remnant of pre Roman language that still exists and is widely spoken in Europe. And the Basque people are known for their hardiness and stubbornness, having resisted the Romans, the Muslims, the French during the Napoleonic years, and later the fascist Francoists. The Umayyads continued to expand northward until 732, when their defeat at the Battle of Tours pushed them back into the Iberian Peninsula and where the Emirate of Cordoba was eventually established after the overthrow of the Umayyads and the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate. The Umayyad Caliphs did not push conversion to Islam, although many people did convert, uh, but Arab Muslims weren't really keen to give up their privileged status, and being from one of the Arabian tribes still held weight all over the Umayyad Caliphate. But in the Persian highlands, Arabs had lived amongst the Persians as opposed to like in North Africa or in the Levant where there would be like a fortress city and the Muslims would live in the fortress city and control all the trade and the administration and everything. And all the non-Arabs, Muslim or not, lived just like outside of the city. In the Persian highlands, the Arabs lived amongst the Persians and intermarried and adopted a lot of their language and customs. And so these blended family units resented their second class citizenship under the Umayyads. Other non-Arab Muslims, such as the Somali clans and the Nubians and the Turco-Persian tribes of Central Asia, as well as the Bedouins, they also had to pay the jizya at this time. And so they united to overthrow the Umayyads, and they were assisted in this by Shia Muslims who were still angry about the Battle of Karbala. The Abbasids claimed descent from Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, an uncle of the Prophet Muhammad, and while the Abbasid caliphs were Arabs themselves, they were a little bit more attuned to the grievances of non-Arab Muslims and instituted reforms that included non-Arab Muslims in the Ummah. In Al-Andalus, which is what the Muslims called Umayyad-controlled Iberia, Umayyad Prince Abd al-Rahman I was the only member of his family to escape Damascus alive and set up the independent Emirate of Cordoba, which ruled over what is now present-day Portugal and Spain for over 700 years until the Reconquista. The Abbasids moved the capital of their caliphate from Damascus to Baghdad, a newly created city not far from the old Parthian and Sasanian capital of Ctesiphon. And it was closer to their allies, the Persians. Syrian Christians had supported the Umayyads in the revolution, and after the overthrow, they were marginalized by the more devout Abbasids. The jizya was increased and was briefly applied to churches, monks, nuns, and clergy, but after outcries from the Muslim allies of the Christians, the jizya was dropped back to its original amount, as stated by the Prophet Muhammad with the same exemptions. With the growth of the ummah, conversion to Islam became more attractive for Christians, Druze, and other non-Muslims, and the Abbasids encouraged conversion more than their Umayyad predecessors. Under the Abbasid Caliphate, Islam experienced a golden age where universities were built and the arts flourished and the Muslim world had great economic prosperity. In particular, the Persian influence on Islam grew and Persian dress, culture, languages, and most importantly, their military tactics like cavalry had a pronounced influence on the Abbasids the Abbasids relied heavily on the Persian Bamarket family to finance their wars and their building projects. Much like the Germanic Fodorati changed the demographics of the Roman legions, the Turco-Persian allies of the Abbasids changed the nature and demographics of the Abbasid military as well. Outside of the caliphate, the Khazars had formed a buffer state between the Byzantines and the Abbasids, and they were primarily Jewish. But there were also some like Nestorians and Aryans and even some Muslims living in the Khazar Empire. But the Khazars formed a buffer state between the Byzantines and the Abbasids, and both sides used the Khazars to as like mercenaries or, you know, they would like pay their troops to be a part of their army so that they could fight each other. But by the end of this eighth century, the Abbasids had begun to lose control over large parts of their empire. The Idrisids set up an independent caliphate in Morocco in 793 and the Shiite Boyids took control of Iraq and central and southern Iran in 946 and the Shiite Fatimids took control over Idrisid and Aglubid domains in North Africa by 920 establishing their base of power in Cairo. With support from the Shia Buyids in Iraq and Iran, the Fatimids made Shia Islam an ideological challenge to Sunni Islam by 1000 AD. Buyid dominance began to wane around 1055, and the Seljuk Turks filled the power vacuum that they left in Iran and Iraq, eventually moving westward into Byzantine Anatolia, where they won a decisive victory over the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. This event was the catalyst for the Turkification of Anatolia and the spread of Sunni Islam into Asia Minor. The Seljuk Empire, at its greatest extent, controlled western Anatolia and the Levant, down into the Hindu Kush in the east and from Central Asia to the Persian Gulf in the south. The First and Second Crusades were fought against the Seljuks and the Levant as the Christians of Western Europe tried to take back control of the Holy Lands. And while Seljuk em- the Seljuk Empire was successful in combating the People's Crusade of 1096, they were unable to stop the combined Christian forces of the First Crusade, also known as the Prince's Crusade, from taking the cities of Nicaea, Iconium, Caesarea Mazaka, and Antioch on their march to Jerusalem. By 1099, the Crusaders had recaptured the Levant, which was now called the Holy Land, And established several crusader states such as the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and the kingdom of Jerusalem. The crusader states were ruled by Armenian, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox Christians whose populations were mostly Muslim, if not just a different form of Christianity from the ruler. And coups were commonplace. The Seljuk Empire continued to decline throughout the 10th century. And in Anatolia, the former Seljuk Empire became the Sultanate of Rome, uh, which is how they said Rome, which controlled most of Anatolia until it fell to the Mongols at the Battle of Kozidog in 1243. From there, the Sultanate split into Anatolian beyliks or principalities, one of which was ruled by the House of Osman, who eventually became the Ottoman Turks. Chapter three, Eastern Europe, we're going to Islam. The golden age of Islam came to a screeching halt on 10 February, 1248, sorry, 1258, when Hulagu Khan, brother of the Khagun Monkey Khan, a grandson of Genghis, through his son Tolu, defeated the Abbasids in the 10-day siege of Baghdad. By the 13th century, the Mongol Empire encompassed most of the Eurasian landmass much of the old Abbasid Caliphate, much of China, and it had conquered the Kievan Rus as well. It was and still is the largest empire by a contiguous landmass. And the Mongols were uncannily tolerant of pretty much every faith you could think of. The Christians only tolerated whatever form of Christianity that their king decided. The Muslims only tolerated people of the book and the Mongols really just didn't care. The... Some Mongol Khans and their wives were Aryans, some were pagan, and Kongu, Kagun Guyuk, grandson of Genghis, had even flirted with the idea of converting to Roman Catholicism after his planned conquest of Western Europe if it meant that the Catholic Europeans would submit to the Mongols faster. That's all the Mongols cared about, just submit. After Guyuk died and Mongke became... Kagun, he began to receive envoys from the Byzantine Empire and the Roman Catholic kingdoms in the West. Monkey's administration was heavily staffed with Muslim Persians as well. In 1252, the Armenian king Heatham I visited with Monkey and urged him to unite the empire under Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Monkey replied that as much as he wished for all his subjects to believe in the Messiah, it was not the Mongol way to change a man's religion, only to make him submit. Monkey did assure Heatham of the inviolability of his person in his kingdom, which was pretty instrumental in preserving the Armenian Orthodox Church from persecution by the Muslims. And Monk also informed Heatham that he planned to give control of Jerusalem to the Christians if they helped him in his conquest of the remaining Abbasid lands. Heatham then wrote to the other Christian kings and bishops, suggesting that they also submit to Monkey and the Mongols and assist them in wiping out what the Christians considered the Saracen menace. But he was only successful in recruiting Bohemond VI of Antioch and Sicily, who clearly would have a personal interest in taking back Jerusalem and also Antioch and Sicily. Thus, the Armenians and the Antiochans were with the Mongols as they rode on Baghdad. When Mongke died in 1259 while on campaign in central China, he left no immediate successor, but he did have two younger brothers, Kublai and Arik Boki, who of course started a civil war that Kublai eventually won. This civil war was followed by another war between Kublai and his cousin Kaidu, and these two conflicts split and disunified the Mongol Empire. Kublai was considered Qagun, however, he exerted the most control over Mongolia and China. The Ilkhanate was headed by the House of Hulagu, and the Golden Horde was run by the Ulus of Joki, descendants of Genghis Khan's son Joki. The lands of the Ilkhanate included modern-day Iran, Azerbaijan, and Turkey, at its greatest extent, and also included parts of modern-day Iraq, Syria, Armenia, Georgia, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Pakistan, part of modern Dagestan, and part of modern Tajikistan. Early Ilkhanate rulers were Buddhists or Nestorian Christians, whereas the Mongol population by then was largely Muslim. Beginning with Mahmud Ghazan in 1295, the Ilkhanate rulers were Muslim, but they still had conflicts with other Muslim states, primarily the Mamluk Sultanate in Cairo. Things were so bad between the Ilkhanate and other Muslim states that there was a proposed Franco-Mongol alliance in the 13th century, but it never materialized into anything substantial. While the Mongols spent the greater part of the 13th century bickering with each other and splitting up their empire, the Ottoman Turks of Bithynia were extending their rule over Anatolia. The Byzantine Empire was on its last legs by the 13th century, but it still controlled Constantinople and parts of southwestern Anatolia, parts of mainland Greece and Crete, and occasionally Cyprus. Interestingly enough, the mostly Catholic Crusaders helped hasten the decline of the Byzantine Empire and its eventual fall to the Muslims with a Crusader army sieging and then sacking Constantinople in 1094. They then established the Latin Empire, which encompassed eastern mainland Greece and northwestern Anatolia. The rump state of Nicaea, headed by Michael Paleologos Eighth recaptured Constantinople in 1261 which re-established the Byzantine Empire although it was much diminished and surrounded by enemy states like the Bulgarian and Serbian empires who were both short-lived and eventually consumed by the expanding Sunni Muslim Ottoman Empire. The first outbreak of the Bubonic Plague also known as the Black Death in 1346 Further weakened the Byzantine Empire, however, Byzantine culture flourished in its last couple centuries of existence in what is now called the Paleologian Renaissance. After the fall of Constantinople, the flight of many Byzantine artists, scholars, and clergy to Italy helped to spark the Italian Renaissance. The Ottoman Turks were next up to bat in the medieval imperial game, and they moved with gusto to expand their influence. After unifying the Turkic beyliks under their rule, the Ottomans' next goal was control over all of Anatolia and the Balkans. The Ottomans had taken all the lands in Anatolia that surrounded Constantinople, but the city's strategic position on the Bosphorus Strait made it a pretty difficult target to starve out in a siege. The Ottomans, like most Turkic peoples, were horsemen, and they were better known for their cavalry raids than their mastery at sea. And Constantinople's high walls made it difficult to sack the city. The Byzantine Empire, like I said, it's pretty much limping along at this point, mostly due to their Orthodox and Catholic brethren breaking away from them and establishing their own short-lived empires. So it's fun- it's funny to me, When modern day Balkan nationalists and Islam and Balkan Balkan nationalism and Islamophobia kind of portrays the story as though the Muslims are the cause for fragmentation in the Orthodox community. The Bulgarians and the Serbians took advantage of some weak moments in the Byzantine court and the Volvoids declared sovereignty only to fall victim to the same fragmentation when their own kingdoms were attacked by the Ottomans. There's a reason why the term for political fragmentation of a once strong central state into smaller, mutually hostile states is called Balkanization. And it directly stems from the Balkan leaders' inability to, like, hold it together long enough to repel a common enemy. From these wars in the Balkans, we get two seminal battles that have shaped history in numerous ways since. The Battle of Kosovo on 15 June 1389, and the Battle of Nicopolis that took place on 25 September 1396. The Battle of Kosovo Kosovo was preceded by the Battle of Maritsa in 1371, where the Ottomans slaughtered the Serbs and took Macedonia and Thrace, including the important city of Adrianople. The Serbian commanders, brothers whose names I'm not even going to attempt to say today, tried to get the Hungarians, Bulgarians, and the other Serbian voids support to drive the Ottomans out of Europe, but they were unable to convince these other European principalities to help, not even the Byzantines, who were practically encircled by the Ottomans at this point. From their new base in Adrianople, the Ottomans moved to take all of Serbia and met the Serbs on the Kosovo field, a few miles north of the modern-day capital of Kosovo, Pristina, And there, the Battle of Kosovo was joined. The commanders of both armies were killed in the battle, and it was almost a pyrrhic victory for the Ottomans, as it left them with so few men in Europe that they were vulnerable to attack and could have been driven from Europe shortly afterward, if the Christians had been able to set aside their petty differences and join forces. The Bulgarian Vovodes were like not trustful of each other, nor were the remaining Serbian vovoids very trustful of each other. And the Byzantines hated them both because like, why did you break away from us when the Latins attacked? So that was what they were more concerned about than getting the Ottomans off of mainland Europe. In 1394, Pope Boniface IX proclaimed a crusade against the Turks, but he had two additional claimants to the papacy in Avignon under the protection of the French monarchy, Clement VII and Benedict XIII. So Catholics were pretty split over whether to answer Boniface's call or not. Eventually in 1395, after the Ottomans had already won the Battle of Kosovo and replenished their troops with reinforcements from the East, The King of France, Charles VI, decided to honor Sigismund of Hungary's request for help and a combined Hungarian, Croatian, Bulgarian, Wallachian, French, Burgundian, and German force, assisted by the Venetian Navy, met the Ottoman army at the Danubian fortress of Nicopolis on 25 September 1396, where they were routed by the famed Ottoman cavalry. The loss at Nicopolis signaled the end of the Bulgarian empire and the Ottomans were primed to take on the kingdom of Hungary next. Nicopolis is also sometimes called the crusade of Nicopolis and was the penultimate large scale crusade of that era followed by the crusade of Varna. The Byzantines were, in the immortal words of one Evelyn Lozada, a non-motherfucking factor by the time of the battles of Kosovo and Nicopolis. By 1402... Byzantine lands consisted of Constantinople and a few exclaves in Greece that remained loyal to the Paleologos dynasty. They got extremely lucky when Timur, also known as Tamerlane, founder of the Timurid dynasty of Central Asia, invaded the Ottomans from the east, which led to the Battle of Ankara in 1402 and the Ottoman Interregnum. This crisis period for the Ottomans ended when Sultan Bayezid, son Mehmed I became sultan and reestablished Ottoman dominance. His son Mehmed II took up the cause of securing all of Asia Minor for the Turks and laid siege to Constantinople for 53 days, eventually sacking the city on 29 May 1453. Sultan Mehmed II the second, two, whatever, had taken a radical course and used cannons and bombards to take the city, making the medieval practice of walled cities as protection pretty much obsolete. With the Byzantine Empire finally extinguished, the Ottomans yet again set their sights on mainland Eastern Europe. And on 1 January 1443, Pope Eugene (laughs) IV... Pope Eugene, that's so weird. Sorry. Called for another crusade to save Christendom from the Muslim-Turkish threat. A combined force of Poles, Hungarians, and Croatians, led by their king, Vladislav III, and then John Hunyadi, the Vovoid of Transylvania, and the Burgundian forces donated by Duke Philip the Good, met the Ottomans at Varna in eastern Bulgaria on 10 November 1444, where the Christians once again lost and Vladislaw III died in battle. Hunyadi was undeterred and attempted to repel the Ottomans again at the Second Battle of Kosovo in 1448, a three-day battle where the Hungarians were first caught by surprise on Kosovo Field after failing to locate the main Ottoman army. Always, 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 always know where your opponent is before you march. Otherwise, what are you marching to besides your death? Then the Ottomans flanked the Hungarian cavalry from the left with the Sepahis, who were Turkish versions of knights, while continuing to harry the Hungarians with infantry and cannon from the front, and then to add ultimate insult to injury, even though the battle was pretty much won for the Ottomans, Sultan Murad II released his Janissaries on the Hungarians, instructing them to kill everyone left in the Hungarian stockade. What made the use of the Janissaries so insulting was that they were a force of slave soldiers who were usually Hungarian, Wallachian, Armenian, Albanian, Bosnian, Bulgarian, Croatian, Greek, or Serbian, and Christian— and they were taken from their homes as boys, enslaved and then converted to Islam to serve as an elite infantry unit loyal only to the Sultan. They were essentially brainwashed from a young age to no longer see themselves as Balkan Christians. And Christians in Anatolia and the Balkans lived in constant fear that their sons might be taken and one day returned to kill them. This system, known as Devzirma, never took boys from Jewish families or from Turkic families, which is like the one time in history that the Jews weren't the targets of a pogrom. And although it was abolished in 1638, the anti-Christian sentiments it engendered did linger and greatly influenced the Armenian genocide of World War I, when the Ottomans lost the Battle of Sarikamish in 1915 and blamed it on Armenian soldiers in the Ottoman army. And if you're thinking, wow, the Janissaries sound a lot like the Unsullied from Game of Thrones, congratulations, you got it. The Janissaries were not eunuchs, though. That was a lie that Christians spread over the centuries because the Ottomans did have eunuchs, but those eunuchs were more of the varies variety. But Janissaries were not eunuchs, and they could even marry after the age of 40. After the Second Battle of Kosovo and the fall of Constantinople, Most of the Christian Balkan states were unable to resist Ottoman expansion and became part of the Ottoman Empire. John Hunyadi spent the rest of his life helping the Kingdom of Hungary resist the Ottomans, and the Albanians under Skanderbeg continued to resist them as well, but 10 years after Skanderbeg's death in 1468, Albania also fell under the control of the Ottomans. By the reign of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent in the 14th century, the Ottoman Empire had reached as far as eastern Hungary and Vienna, although Suleiman failed to take Vienna. With the Duchy of Moscow, later the Russian Empire, and the Kingdom of Hungary serving as the Christian buffer states to Ottoman expansion, the Catholics turned their attention to the Baltic and Scandinavian peoples who had mostly resisted conversion to Christianity. The Catholics were also not done enforcing orthodoxy within the faith, which led to what are now known as the Northern Crusades. Chapter four, calling all unbelievers, the Albigensian, Livonian, and Prussian crusades. So I kind of lied. The Catholics of Europe didn't deal with the Ottomans first and then began the crusades of Europe because the Christianization of Europe happened while the Seljuk Turks were in power and the original crusades were against them to take back Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So those aren't the crusades that I'm going to talk about. The crusades against the Ottomans didn't really get support from Western Europe, despite Hungary, Serbia, Albania, and Bulgaria being Catholic states and Armenians being Orthodox Christians. Also, different parts of Christendom engaged in the Crusades at different times, depending on what was going on domestically. Like, England didn't really get involved in the Crusades until the 11th century, because the anarchy took up most of the 10th century, and France played a part in all of the Holy Land Crusades of the 9th and 10th centuries, but they really weren't as involved in the Crusades against the Ottomans, because they were dealing with Crusades against heretics in France. And also some of the Christian countries and principalities that were struggling against the Ottomans, like the Genoese and the Venetians, were also their rivals. For the Northern Crusades, the Germans of the Holy Roman Empire and the Danes and sometimes the Swedes were charged with carrying out the Christianization Christianization campaigns up that way. In addition to their stated religious purpose, Crusades always had a political purpose as well. The first Northern Crusade I'll be talking about is the Livonian Crusade, which was a Christianization campaign in the Baltic regions, roughly encompassing modern day Lithuania, uh, sorry, Latvia. And that was aimed at not only Christianizing these remaining areas of Europe, but also bringing these areas in their economically viable access to the Baltic and Black Seas under the control of Denmark, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Catholic Church. So starting with the Livonian Crusade. The Livonia Crusade was part of a greater papal-sanctioned northern crusade to convert the peoples of the Baltic Sea region to Roman Catholic Christianity. The Swedes had brought Christianity to Latvia in the 7th century AD, and Danish Christians had begun settling in the region by the 11th century. The indigenous Livonians had traditionally paid tribute to the Eastern Orthodox Orthodox. Principality of Polotsk, and they were allied with the Roman Catholic Saxons against their southern neighbors, the pagan Semigallians of modern-day Lithuania. In 1189, Quapo of Torėda was the first prominent Livonian to be baptized, but this failed to make a significant impression on the other Livonians, and in 1193, Pope Celestine III called for a crusade against pagans in northern Europe. At first, the crusade was peaceful, but when the Pope realized that Livonians weren't flocking to Christianity willingly, he sent in the big guns and the Livonians dragged that big gun from his horse and beat him to death. A German, Albrecht von Bucks. Oh, Buxhovden, Yeah. Established a bishopric in Riga, Latvia in 1201 and formed the Livonian Brothers of the Sword to proselytize to the Livonians and take control over the trade routes that ran through Riga. By controlling the port at Riga, von Buxthovden controlled all the trade on the Dugava River, which flows into the mighty Dnieper River and down into the Black Sea and to Constantinople. Although Quapo was a Catholic, money if you make, and the Germans were making all of it, and the Livonians weren't making much of it. So Quapo and the Livonians revolted in 1206 and were defeated at Tereda. And all the Livonians who were with him that did die converted. Quapo and the converted Livonians even participated in the Crusades against the Estonians. And Quapo died in the Battle of St. Matthew's Day in 1217. As the Crusaders converted more indigenous Baltic peoples, those newly converted Christians were absorbed in these Crusader armies as they swept through the lands of the Latgalians, Estonians, Ozalians, Caronians, Samogitians, and Semigallians, forcibly converting and establishing bishoprics everywhere they went. Geopolitically speaking, the Catholics wanted to make sure that the Baltic region was within the Holy Roman Empire with a stable and growing population of Catholics. The Novgorod Republic had emerged out of the breakup of the Kievan Rus as a strong principality that was also very prosperous, and that posed a significant threat to the Nordic and German principalities, who also relied on the old Varangian trade routes in the ports of the Baltic Sea for trade. The Novgorodians were also rich and influential and Eastern Orthodox, with a long standing relationship with the church in Constantinople and with the Byzantine emperors. The Varangian Guard, for instance, was an elite unit of Varangian Rus who served as the emperor's personal bodyguards. Religiously and politically, worlds collided along the eastern and western banks of the Dnieper River. And for the Holy Roman Empire, securing the ports and rivers in the Baltic that fed into the Dnieper was essential for the prosperity of the kingdoms within the confederation. By the time the Livonian Crusade ended in 1290, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, not the whole thing, but most of it, had been divided into six municipalities, the Archbishopric of Riga, the Bishopric of Courland, the Bishopric of Dorpot, the Bishopric of Ozilwijk, the lands ruled by the Livonian Brothers of the Sword, and Dominum Directum of the King of Denmark, and the Duchy of Estonia, which was also Dominum Directum of Denmark until 1346, when it was sold to the Teutonic Knights, the Danes and the Roman Catholic Church were the big winners in the Livonian Crusades, with the church adding four bishoprics to its land holdings. Next, I'll talk about the Albigensian Crusade. So the Cathars were a dualist Gnostic sect that first took root in the city of Albi, which is where the crusade gets its name. The Cathars were part of a reform movement in the late 8th century that disavowed the authority of the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches and instead encouraged a return to the gospels and the teachings of the early church fathers. They had a rather simplistic belief in good and evil with a good God and an evil God known as Satan. Human spirits were the sexless, meaning genderless spirits of angels trapped in human bodies, which is really weird. And I would love to know how they came to that conclusion. And only through a ritual that they called consolamentum could a person's spirit return to the good God after being corrupted by the evil God while they were alive. Thus, the consolamentum, which was a ritual bath, was done when a person first became a Cathar and at the point of death. Catharism was spread through Western Europe by Gnostics and Eastern Orthodox sects, fleeing the advance of the Seljuk Turks. The Abbasids and previous Muslim caliphates really hadn't cared all that much about what forms of Christianity were practiced in their land so long as you paid your jizya. But the Turks, starting with the Seljuk Turks, were less accepting and accommodating than their predecessors. And so many of these sects fled to Western Europe and took their weird ass ideas with them. And the Catholics were not having it. Many of the Cathars settled in the county of Toulouse in southern France. And if I pronounce something wrong in, in French, don't forgive me. I do not care. But yeah. The Cathars settled in the county of Toulouse in southern France because the Count of Toulouse, Raymond the Sixth, was pretty lenient and didn't persecute the Cathars like his rivals in the crown of Aragon did or Aquitaine. Western Mediterranean France in the 12th century was divided between the county of Toulouse and the county of Aragon, which later evolved into a united Spain And the Cathars fared better in the Toulouse camp than they did in the Aragonese camp. Raymond controlled a large area and a lot of different monarchs had their eyes on it, including Henry II of England, who controlled the neighboring duchy of Aquitaine through his wife, Eleanor. And Alfonso II of Aragon, the Count of Barcelona, wanted to incorporate Toulouse into his newly recaptured lands in Aragon. When the Catholic Church sent papal legates to encourage the Cathars to convert, Raymond did not offer assistance because he and the papal legate couldn't get along. And in 1208, the legate's assassination led to Raymond getting excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He eventually made his way to Rome to plead his case and throw a bunch of cash at the Pope, and the papal bull was expunged. But then in 1209, Raymond was excommunicated again, which meant his subjects didn't have to listen to him. And Pope Innocent III called for a crusade against the Cathars that coincided with the Fifth and Sixth Crusades to the Holy Land. Most of the crusaders came from northern France and others came from England. Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine wanted to make sure that they sent crusaders from Aquitaine As did Alfonso of Aragon, kind of in the hopes that the Pope would see their religious fervor and favor them as the lords of the county of Toulouse after they won it over. The Crusaders first massacred every man, woman, and child in the town of Beziers, and the Aragonese count of Foy, Fa, who cares had initially promised to protect the city. But when he heard of the size of the Crusader army, he fell back to defend his own city, Carcassonne. Because why would you trust a Frenchman at his word? At Carcassonne, the Crusaders cut the town's water supply and the Cathars surrendered and were expelled from the city wearing loincloths. Simon de Montfort. Whose son would lead the Second Baron's War during the reign of Henry III in England became the commander of the Crusader forces and was noted for his ruthlessness in dealing with Cathars who refused to repent. By the fall of 1209, the towns of Albi, Castelnautery, Castres, Fanjol, Limoux, Lombers, and Montreal had all surrendered, most without a fight. The next battle was over the town of Lestours, and the Cathars under the, the command of Pierre Roger de Cabaret repulsed the assault and also the assault of the fortress of Termes. In every town, non-perfect Cathars, which were Cathars who had not yet received the first consolamentum, were given the opportunity to recant, but very few chose to do so. In one town, Simon de Montfort burned 140 Cathars. Some of them were children and all of whom had refused his offer of repentance to spare their lives. So I don't know who's dumber in that situation. The Crusaders under the... Cathars, oh, the Crusaders under the command of de Montfort and Arnard Armory and the Cathars under the command of Raymond and his brother Baldwin spent all of 1210 AD attacking each other in the same towns, which was bad for business. And by 1211, Baldwin had betrayed his brother in exchange for clemency because he's French and then went back to the Cathar side. Then changed his mind again and went back to the crusader's eye where he remained. The real prize was the town of Toulouse, which was the largest town in the Languedoc region and where Raymond's castle was located. So if you took Toulouse, boom, you had the whole region. De Montfort encircled his forces around Toulouse in preparation for a long siege throughout 1212. Honestly, you cannot go wrong with a good encirclement campaign in ground warfare. The only thing that's more effective, I think, is a V-shaped ambush. But anyway, in Toulouse, the Raymonds turned to Peter II of Aragon for assistance. Peter didn't have any love for the Cathars, and he was a devout Catholic. However, it had become clear that Pope Innocent III favored the Languedoc becoming part of the French crown or becoming part of Aquitaine over becoming part of Aragon. Peter's sister was also married to Raymond. He had four wives total. So she reached out to Peter and he reached out to Pope Innocent III to ask him to declare a halt to the crusade on the grounds that a crusade against the Moors in Spain was more important. Innocent agreed to halt the crusade so that a crusade against the Moors could be started Instead, but he refused to grant Peter's request that Innocent restore Raymond's lands in the Languedoc or at the very least give them to Peter's nephew, Raymond's son. Because by this time, Raymond's son and wife were Peter's wards since it wouldn't be right for a Catholic princess and her son to be living with a twice excommunicated heretic. Peter also asked that Raymond be allowed to go on the crusade against the Moors as a way of doing penance. But Innocent refused to return the Languedoc lands to the Raymond family. And he refused to allow Raymond to do penance via crusade. He was just fucking over it, I guess. So feeling slighted by Pope Innocent III and having grown suspicious of Simon de Montfort's goals in the Languedoc, like this guy was a complete asshole. Peter rejected the council's verdict and decided to help the Cathars in Toulouse, which is a bad idea. When the French are fucking up, you just let them. Pope Innocent III sent letters to Peter II, warning him that he would be excommunicated. But luckily for Peter, he died in the first major battle with the Crusader army. See, told you it was a bad idea. The Battle of muret before the Papal Bull could be issued. By 1225, the fighting had really not changed anyone's position in the Languedoc. The Cathars still held most of the towns in the south, and the Crusaders held most of the north. At the Council of Borgias in 1225, the French King Louis VIII gathered up the largest force yet to take on the Cathars, and by 12 April 1229, Raymond VII, son of the Raymond who got the family into the mess in the first place, signed the Treaty of Paris at Meaux, which recognized Raymond as the ruler of Toulouse in exchange for him abandoning the Cathar cause and tearing down all of Toulouse's defenses, as well as marrying his daughter Joan to the French king's brother Alphonse, who was old as hell, so that Toulouse would eventually revert to the French crown authority in the future, which it eventually did. After the Albigensian Crusade, Pope Gregory IX established papal inquisitions to bring order to heresy accusations and trials because Simon de Montfort was like running roughshod, like burning children and stuff. Like what the hell, man? And the French crown was greatly strengthened, not only by the terms of the Treaty of Meaux, but also by the reliance the papacy began to have on the French crown, eventually leading to the Avignon papacy. The next one was the Prussian Crusade. The old Prussians were a confederation of pagan tribes in the Baltic region that is now part of modern-day Poland. The kingdom of Poland had tried to convert the old Prussians in the 7th century, but they were a very martial people, sort of like the Prussians that came after them. And they resisted Christianization even as their Baltic neighbors relented under the pressure until the 13th century. In March 1217, Pope Honoris I never know how to say that, the 3rd, issued a papal bull calling for a crusade against the Old Prussians after decades of attacks and forced conversions had only weakened the Polish state and resulted in nearly 300 churches burned and sacked. Yo, the Prussians were not fucking around. The Pope chose Christian of Oliva to command the crusade and many Polish and German nobles donated to rebuild Christian's bishopric and the accompanying fortress before taking on the Prussians In either 1225 or 1228 14 German knights were called to form a holy order called the order of Dobresen. And while they initially had success against the Prussians, the Prussians retaliated and decimated the order. After that, Christian of Oliva met with the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order, Hermann von Salza, and requested the assistance of the Teutonic Knights, which were the military arm of the order. In the early Middle Ages, knightly orders like the Knights of St. John, the Knights Templar, and the Teutonic Knights were formed to carry out crusades and act as guides and protectors to people on pilgrimage. The Teutonic Knights were originally founded in 1192 in Acre in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Their primary function was to build churches and hospitals and protect Christian pilgrims, both Catholic and Orthodox, during their pilgrimages to the Holy Land. After the Holy Land was lost in the fall of Acre in 1291, many of these orders, such as the Knights Templar, used the considerable wealth that they had plundered from the Holy Land and established a proto-banking system with the medieval kings of Europe. The Knights Templar lent large sums of money to the French king, Philip IV, and when it was time to collect, he instead used rumors about the Templar's secret initiation ceremony as a means to get the order discredited and the members excommunicated from the church. Again, the French being awful. Hermann was 95% with the shits in regards to helping out the Poles and the Germans with the old Prussians, but he had some reservations. Knightly orders were always being invited into this realm or another, or in the case of the Templars, asked for money, and then when their influence started to eclipse the influence of whatever duke or king sent for them in the first place, they'd be expelled and usually had their assets seized if they didn't fight for them. Such was the case with Hermann von Salza's Teutonic knight, who had been summoned by the king of Hungary to help him protect his lands from the Seljuk Turks, and then expelled them when the king felt that their influence was getting too great. So Herman wanted to ensure autonomy for his order in the form of land that would belong to the order in perpetuity, and that could house tenants, which would raise taxes, and then they would also grow crops. And then, you know, having all this land and, you know, a fiefdom of their own would mean that his men could make a living for themselves as landlords, basically, long after they hung up their spurs, if spurs were even a thing in the 13th century, I'm not really sure, Hermann had also promised the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II that the Teutonic Knights would assist him in the Fifth Crusade to, yet again, try and take back the Holy Land. He was able to convince Frederick that subjugating the old Prussians and converting them would not only be a better way to please God, it would also make the borders of the Holy Roman Empire more secure. Frederick II took the bait. And in 1226, the Golden Bull of Rimini granted the Teutonic Knights Chelmno Land or Comerland and any future conquests. While the mission to convert the old Prussians remained under the command of Bishop Christian of Oliva, who needed bullet points for his own resume and eventual run for Pope. Oh, and Herman tried to run the same game on the King of Poland to get even more land. But Duke Conrad of Masovia was like, hell no. Nah, and contested that Chelmno land was not even Frederick's to give. And that the Teutonic Knights were only supposed to operate there temporarily and under his authority, as well as any future conquests. However, Herman saw the document as granting the order autonomy in. All territorial acquisitions aside from allegiance and aside from allegiance to the Holy See, they didn't have to answer to anybody. So, to squash the beef so that all parties could go on the Prussian Crusade already, Pope Gregory IX issued the Golden Bull of Rieti in 1234, which reaffirmed the order's control of all conquered lands, placing them only under the authority of the Holy See. Eventually, the Teutonic Order did establish. Uh, their own state called the Dischordenstadt, which lasted from 1226 to 1525, after which half of it became part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the other half became part of the Duchy of Prussia, ruled by the House of Hohenzollern until 1918. The crusade against the old Prussians, which, as I said earlier, was a confederation of more than a dozen different tribes united by their paganism, isn't really all that interesting in and of itself. Both sides won battles, seized towns, cities, and ports, lost them, and then took them all over again. Unlike the pagans in Estonia and Latvia, however, the pagans of Lithuania were made of slightly tougher stuff, and by 1295, the Poles and Germans had agreed to leave an area called Sudovia, unpopulated, a sort of a barrier area between the still pagan Lithuanian tribes and the Christians in Poland. Still, even after all that resistance, all areas of Lithuania were fully converted by the middle of the 14th century, since the Poles and the Lithuanians found common cause in fighting the Teutonic Order Prussians. Chapter 5, A Multipolar Medieval World By the 14th century, the world was divided between two major Abramaic religions, Christianity and Islam. Beginning in the 11th century, the Muslim caliphates had begun their conquests of the Indian subcontinent and by 1206 had established the Delhi Sultanate and begun large-scale conversions. As the Delhi Sultanate splintered into smaller polities like the Gujarat, Malwa, Bahmani, and Bengal Sultanates, Hindus began their own reconquista of sorts and established states such as the Raya and Nyakas, Vijanagram oh, hold on, let me say that. Vijayanagaram? Vigen- Vijayanagaram. Yeah, Gajapatis, Cheros, and Rajput states. The Muslim Sultanates were followed up by the Mughal Empire, which was founded by Zahir ud din Muhammad, aka Babur, a descendant of both Tamerlane and Genghis Khan. Direct descendant. Wow, what a bloodline. The Mughal Empire stretched from the outer fringes of the Indus River Basin in the west. Northern Afghanistan in the northwest and Kashmir in the north to the highlands of present day Assam and Bangladesh in the east and the uplands of the Deccan Plateau in South India. Together with the Ottoman and Safavid empires, these Muslim states are known as the gunpowder states because one, their founders and early leaders utilized gunpowder in order to develop cannons and make siege, which made siege warfare pretty obsolete. And two, these three empires were among the strongest and most stable economies of the early modern period, which led to commercial expansion and greater patronage of culture while their political and legal institutions were consolidated with an increasing degree of centralization. In essence, the Ottomans, Safavids, who were Persians, by the way, and the Mughals paved the way for the modern nation state that took off in Europe after World War I. I know I previously said Napoleon planted that seed, but I can never resist taking credit away from a Frenchman, even if he was actually Corsican. Napoleon more so planted the seeds of ethno-nationalism, whereas the Mughals, Safavids, and Ottomans ruled over ethnically and religiously diverse empires that Napoleonic era Europeans would have never tolerated. The British didn't allow the Jews to return until the 1950s, for Christ's sake. Pockets of Judaism and Eastern and Oriental Orthodox Christianity persisted in the East with Jewish communities in North Africa and Southern Arabia, as well as in Iran, Iraq, and even in India. And the Copts of Egypt and the Ethiopian Orthodox lived on through successive Muslim sultanate power struggles. A strong Christian base persisted in the Levant, namely in Syria, where they still reside today in cities like Damascus and Latakia. The Duchy of Moscow eventually becomes the Russian Empire, and it was the strongest Eastern Orthodox polity in Eurasia, often lending a hand and some soldiers to the Orthodox and Catholic Armenians who fought to remain autonomous from the Ottomans, a venture that they eventually failed in and which would be devastating for them in the early 20th century. Islam also spread throughout Southeast Asia through trade, beginning in the 900s. And the Sultanate of Kedah was established in 1136. Sufism, which is a form of Islamic mysticism, fit nicely with the pre-existing belief systems of Southeast Asia. And I remember I told you it's a lot easier for people to embrace a new religion when it dovetails pretty nicely with the one that they already worship in. And this happened in particular in Malacca and Java. And Sufi missionaries were instrumental in spreading the religion in these areas as well. East Asia was largely untouched by Christianity or Islam. The Ming Dynasty controlled China from 1368 to 1644. And this Han Chinese Chinese dynasty favored the three teachings of Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. With most early Ming emperors favoring Taoism and later Ming emperors favoring Confucianism. Islam was tolerated by the early Ming emperors insofar as the Muslims were there to conduct brisk trade, but Christianity was not tolerated at all. And by 1616, the few Jesuits who had established a base, bases actually in Nanjing and Macau were expelled. And so now I'm wondering why do so many massacres happen in Nanjing? Anyway, I also learned about the Kaifeng Jews, a Jewish community in Kaifeng in the Henan province in China, whose members had largely assimilated into Chinese society while preserving some Jewish traditions and customs. Their origins are kind of murky, but it's most likely thought that they are descended from Persian or Iraqi Jews who settled in the area from the Silk Road, although no one knows exactly why. In sub-Saharan Africa, Islam spread across the Sahara into West Africa beginning in the 9th century. And present-day Nigeria, the largest and most populous country in West Africa, roughly 50% of the population is Muslim. Notable Muslim kingdoms in sub-Saharan Africa include the Songhai Empire, which lasted from 1340 to 1591, the Kilwa Sultanate of the Swahili Coast, which started roughly around the mid-12th century until 1505, and the Mali Empire, which was founded by the legendary Sundiata Keita, He's not a legend, like, like, you're not sure if he's real, like King Arthur. He was a real person. But his exploits are on, like, Suleiman the Great levels. And he's the grandfather of the equally as legendary Mansa Musa. The Mali Empire lasted from 1235 to 1670 and was known for its wealth and for the famous universities at Timbuktu, which still exists as a library in present-day Mali. These and many other African polities thrived at the same time that the kingdoms of Western Europe were repeatedly trying and failing to take back the Holy Lands. And great centers of learning existed in these kingdoms, as well as sophisticated infrastructure, while the French were still making do with the old Roman roads and whatever goat tracks they could find. Aside from Ethiopia and parts of Egypt, Christianity didn't make much of an impact in sub-Saharan Africa until the 15th and 16th centuries, when the Portuguese missionaries arrived with the Portuguese traders and it wouldn't become a rival to Islam in West Africa in particular until the 18th century when European colonization began in earnest. Or sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Eight 18th and 19th century. As far as the Americas are concerned, the continents of North and South America, as well as Central America, were blessedly spared from Christianity and Islam during the early Middle Ages. However, there was a mission to convert the indigenous Greenlanders by Icelandic Christians and Norwegians in the 12th century, one that ended very quickly when a monk approached a Greenlander woman and promptly got beaten to death before he could even say a word. The rest of the missionaries didn't even bother to get off the boat after that, and North America was saved, if only for a few more centuries. You go, Greenlander woman, you go, girl. The Christians might have lost the Holy Land, but the Christianization crusades in Northern Europe greatly enriched the Holy See and strengthened the Holy Roman Empire. Monarchs and popes worked closely together most of the time to maintain control over Europe, with the popes usually exercising greater influence, but not always. The Middle Ages was considered a papal golden age and the ways and means that the church exercised their authority would eventually lead to the second major schism in Christendom, the Protestant Reformation. Join me next time for more Musings on History.